Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The body of Diana, Princess of Wales, is expected to be flown back to Britain later today. She died at four o'clock this morning, Paris time, after a car crash in the city. Her companion, Dodie Fayed, and their driver were also killed in the accident. Welcome to episode seven of Fatal Voyage, Diana Case Solved. I'm your host, ex-homicide detective Colin McLaren. In the previous episode, we heard about the fatal catalogue of errors and incompetence shown by the Al-Fayed security team charged with protecting Princess Diana. Rhys Jones should have insisted there and then and said to Dodie, my job is on the line, I know, but I'm not allowing this man to drive this car. You can sack me if you want, I'll be out of here. But I cannot, in all consciousness and by professional ability or integrity, allow this man to drive that car. He couldn't say that. And he allowed Henri Paul not only to drive the car, but to mastermind a rear exit, which is a fatal security move. In this episode, we're going to turn our attention to the French authorities and how they investigated the sudden death of the world's most famous woman. And we're going to find critical evidence they missed. 22 years ago, I watched like everybody else, shocked at the reports from Paris. By then, as a cop with 20 years' experience under my belt, my shock wasn't just at the death of the princess, but what I was seeing from the crash site itself. I put aside what I was doing and flew to Paris to investigate for myself back then. And I've assembled a team, including investigative journalists Dylan Howard and Aaron Tinney, to do the same again now. How does a detective from Melbourne, Australia, decide that he wants to go to Paris to try and solve this case? I couldn't believe, as I watched the footage, and it was going 24-7, what an absolute mess that the French were making of this particular crime scene. What was basically the biggest problem here was nobody treated the death of Lady Diana on that massive collision that took three lives and all of the drama and all of the media noise that surrounded it as a crime scene. They just saw it as a late evening accident, hosed it down, swept up all the rubble, all the broken glass, opened the road again for the morning traffic. And that in itself is the single reason that we have all these unanswered questions today. There is the scene of the wreckage, a high-speed metropolitan tunnel well lit in the, in the city of Paris tonight. That was a Mercedes-Benz 600 series sedan. The whole area was busier than Black Friday sales. It was mad. There were so many people inside that tunnel. Nothing was cordoned off. There was no security. There was people coming in all directions and the TV cameras were in there as well. 
showing the world this disaster, this mess. No one seemed to be in charge. And then one of the great things with a crime scene is to take charge and therefore get hold of it and get it done and start unfolding all of your experts, your white coats, your forensic people, even your medicos. They're important. Things need to be put into perspective. You've got to seal it off. You've got to get all your exhibits in. You've got to manage all those exhibits. There's so much to do. None of that was being done in front of my TV screen. All we saw basically in the first three to four hours was the attendance to the Mercedes, the bodies. This is a two-way tunnel with no solid divider between directions of traffic. Police in Paris put it on the back of a flatbed uh, Renault uh, truck with flashing lights. Dodi Al-Fayed dead, uh, Princess Diana dead at the age of 36. The next thing that happened was startling. Once the bodies were removed from the Mercedes, a low loader truck was then reversed into the tunnel and the whole world then saw a little mobile crane come in, pick up the Mercedes that hadn't even been properly photographed yet, hadn't been treated as an exhibit yet. The bloody thing was full of clues and what they did was the crane picked this incredibly important major exhibit up, put it on the back of a low loader, didn't even cover it, didn't even tie it down properly and off the low loader roared into the night past the crowd and the news services were following behind as it was bouncing along the streets of Paris. Anything could have fallen or dislodged. This major exhibit was just treated like a piece of junk. And I'm watching this on TV thinking, what the hell are you doing? That exhibit should have sat there for five working days. That tunnel should have been sealed all that time and every expert available to the French should have poured over it, every exhibit, Every piece, every item should have been pulled apart and analysed and sent away for all sorts of reports. Do you think they were doing that deliberately or that was just naivety? I couldn't imagine that they were doing this deliberately. All of these issues are part of how to handle this crime scene. Nothing like this was going on at all. And then lo and behold, once the low loader had got out of the tunnel and was bouncing along the cobblestone streets of Paris into the night, The next thing that happened within minutes was a council truck arrived. It was a water tanker and it started hosing the entire street down. The entire surface and walls of that tunnel then underwent a massive water spray. And then you had three or four council workers in these bright green and yellow outfits that then swept up everything. And this is shown on global media. The tunnel where the accident happened has now been reopened and there too flowers have been left as a mark of people's sorrow. In coming days there will be many questions to be answered about the cause of the accident, but as that investigation gets underway, few have yet grasped the full impact of the tragedy. In the immediate aftermath of the crash, the first to arrive on the scene were the frenzied paparazzi on their motorbikes. Some rushed to help the victims, others took out their cameras. Darren Lyons ran the Big Pictures photography agency in 1997. He remembers being woken in London that night with news and the pictures arriving almost immediately. None of the big news agencies like AAP or Reuters had the story and I had kind of the world exclusive at my feet. Not even the editors at the time believed what was going on and they were making checks anywhere. It was literally minutes after the accident. Our information was that she'd um, 
she certainly was unconscious and it looked as if she may have broken an arm or something to that effect. There's no way that we felt at the time that the seriousness of it, we knew that at the time Jodie was in, in a terrible trouble. So that was when the pictures started to come in and uh, pretty extraordinary, pretty graphic. There was only certain ones that were sent through. There's the others that said that he couldn't send and didn't want to send, which was understandable at the time. The police arrived minutes later and the first ambulance and fire engine soon after. American tourists Jack and Robin Firestone were caught up in the traffic jam on the other side of the Alma Tunnel and watched as the paparazzi descended on the wreckage. As we entered the tunnel, there was definitely unusual traffic. It was a slowdown and we were trying to peek ahead to see what was coming up. But at the same time, we saw these flashing lights bouncing off of the tiled walls from the interior of the tunnel. At that point, in my own thought, I thought that there must be an accident up ahead. I looked toward the westbound lane and saw this carnage. The metal of the car just crushed like an accordion. I've seen automobile crashes, you know, aftermaths, and I've never seen anything like it. The remains of a car, it was almost like it was partially amputated. We saw the remnants of a car with photographers taking close-up photos of the exterior of the car, leaning into the car, taking photos a mile a minute, flash bulbs from the cameras going off, Lots of movement from these photographers. I didn't think of them as paparazzi, understand. I thought this is a forensics team chronicling the inside and the outside of a car for evidence or forensics purposes. Jack and Robin also witnessed the work of the first responders and were not exactly impressed. Guarding the westbound entrance tunnel were a couple of police cars with their emergency lights on, a couple of cops talking with each other. They were very nonchalant in their approach. As far as the police were concerned, there was a real lack of urgency for them to do anything. They were very passive. The police were very nonchalant about the entire scene. The police were doing absolutely nothing to prevent the photographers from taking these photos at a mile a minute. We will hear in future episodes about the Firestone's later treatment at the hands of the French authorities and how their crucial evidence was at first ignored, then discounted, then suppressed. Eventually, perhaps grasping the seriousness of the situation, the police stopped the paparazzi taking any more pictures, confiscated their films and took them away for questioning. There were five or six photographers at the scene that I think pretty much had all their films suspended. I think there was one roll of film that was taken back to be processed in the Paris office and they were wired. And then I think pretty much, I think that office was raided by French gendarmerie and everything was pretty much closed down and seized at some stage throughout that night after discovering that the Princess of Wales had passed away. Back in 1997, I was so appalled at the sloppy handling of the crash scene, I dropped everything and came to Paris to investigate for myself. I'm now here again with Dylan Howard to finally get some definitive answers. A crime scene really is survived by its markings, the scrapes, its scratches, what's been left behind after whatever happened, happened. There's a great adage, there's a great maxim in 
investigation work in forensics that says every contact leaves its trace. Every contact leaves its trace. And what that simply means is if I was to touch a shiny piece of glass with my finger, I'll leave my fingerprint behind. That's my touch. That's my identification. If I was to have a fist fight with somebody, the blows would be evident on each other's faces, each other's knuckles, each contact leaves its trace. That's the principle for every single crime scene without exception. What I found then, as I found again now, is that the physical evidence of a previous accident is still visible if you know where and how to look. The very first thing I saw upon getting out of the taxi and my first arrival at the crime scene was the terrain. This is what detectives do. You walk into a crime scene very slowly. You take it all on. You're looking left, right, peripheral vision. This is a crime scene that's got tens of thousands of people milling around. The road itself, as it approaches the tunnel, drops away a distance of around about three, three and a half metres over a run of about 130 metres. It just drops away and at the same time veers to the left as it goes into this tunnel. And I've never seen a bad piece of road, not quite like this. I've never seen a worse piece of road, I don't think. And as I walked along this roadway and took on the descent and the dangerous part of it, then it hit me. Two massive black in parallel skid marks, two tire marks, seven metres, seven yards long, massive. And they were so bold and so black I knew they were going to be there for months. So straight away I photographed them many, many times and got the tread well defined in my photographs. And I knew I had something special there that I could turn into some forensic evidence. So that was my first observation. So Colin's showing me now an image that he took a week after the actual accident took place. It's a close-up of the scrape marks made by the Mercedes. And what it shows uh, in contrast with the dirty retaining wall is that, you know, there's fresh marks. And today, 22 years later, we can still see the remnants of that. I took my photographs of the skids to Vincent Messina, a former Australian motor racing champion and now leading automotive engineer and expert in the ABS systems. I'm talking to him now to discuss those findings. I just uh, wanted to reiterate some of the stuff that we went through way back in 1997. Do you remember discussing uh, the incident of the death of Lady Diana and the Mercedes? Uh, yes, definitely. We had a, a long discussion, quite a long discussion, on what may have happened and what might not have. So what I did was take the photographs away and then spend some time looking at everything and then got back to it a little bit later on. First of all, you were most interested in the length of the skid. There was a seven metre long skid pair of skids parallel and you said that you went through the tread of those skids and you also mentioned that you were able to find through the handbook of Mercedes that it was the same tread that Mercedes were using for the 280 model. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. It was actually a very similar tyre, um, probably the same one, uh, identifiable by the fact that it had four or five grooves. But what was the starting point, I guess, was the fact that the track uh, was a certain distance and you had measured that out and we were able to, within one millimetre, confirm that those treads were definitely from that Mercedes. 
also you um you remember the seven meter long skid or just over seven yards long pair of skids it was at a merge lane and you really went to town on studying the treads on that rubber left on the road and came up with some an interesting I guess engineering report on the bulge of there was some bulge marks or fluctuation marks in the rubber tread itself do you remember that yeah, about um, the seven-yard skids were almost uh, telling you a story itself. It's like a storybook. The interesting part was about two-thirds of the way along the skid, there was a bulge in the skid mark and it changed direction for a short period of time, probably half a millisecond. But you can see it was darker, went to the right, which meant that it must have had an external force acting on the on the car itself. So it must have either hit something or something, he hit something else. So, yeah, definitely. So something's hit it... Or it's hit something at the merge lane. Is that, is that what you're saying? That's right, yeah. He was already one third of the way in, I guess, on the left-hand lane when he started off in the right-hand lane. Hmm. Uh, and the fact is, actually locked the brakes up going into the into that uh, dip, uh, into the left-hand corner. But then he's, hit, he's actually hit something. So hmm. whatever he hit was the cause of him locking the brakes up in the first place and the hmm. cause of the accident starting from that point. Now, of course, hmm. his excessive speed was also a cause. And so as a fact, he was um, highly intoxicated and under the influence of several concoctions and drugs, I guess. Vincent had confirmed that the skid marks belonged to a S280 model Mercedes-Benz. No one else in the world had made this calculation. And what he also discovered was the driver, Henri Paul, had slammed on the brakes after coming into contact with something or someone at the merge lane, which is about 76 metres before the tunnel. The skids were not the only evidence I collected, however. You also notice uh, white capping above the retaining wall. Can you explain what that was? As you go down this sudden decline of about, drop of about three metres on the road surface into the tunnel, there's this retaining wall that appears to take up this, of course, um, terrain and and to hold back all the soil in the gardens. And this retaining wall had this wonderful white travertine marble capping going along the top of it. But I noticed with this white capping, as soon as I'd seen the two in parallel tyre marks, each of about seven metres, seven yards long, I looked up and wondered, imagined where they were going to end up. And I looked in front of me and it went straight to the white capping. And a metre and a half or metre point two, or well over a yard above the road surface, on that capping was this long scar of black tyre residue. And it was as black as against the white travertine marble. And I thought, my God, that's recent. That's like only days old. And I went up to it and I just very gently brushed my palm along this two metre rubber scar. And I felt all of these little bristles of rubber. And that confirmed absolutely that this rubber and the presence of the rubber hadn't been there more than perhaps a few days or a week or so. These two things were related. The rubber tyre residue at the top of the capping, turn around, what's immediately behind you in line is the two parallel skid marks. And straight away, I knew the car had been airborne. 
not having seen the site when I was presented with the photographs, um, we worked out, or I worked out, the uh, the speed the car was travelling at. And at the time, it was far in excess of what other people had estimated that reaction time. But what was amazing to me was when I went there, I, I viewed the site and Fisher don't do it justice. The road falls away incredibly quickly there. It's, it's a, a very, very fast dip. It's a fall of major proportions. So it left nothing to my imagination, the fact that the car could actually take off at that speed, given the, the fall away in the road from that point. But what would have happened at the speed he was travelling at, as soon as he got to the point where the road dipped down, is the air would have gone underneath the car and lifted the car up. Well, I showed you photographs of fresh tyre residue on the top of the capping, which is about 1.2 yards above the road surface or well over a metre above the road surface. Um, that's consistent with it being airborne. Yes, of course. Uh, there's no way known it could not have been airborne. It must have been airborne. And, and I, I think I mentioned at the time, had he been travelling at another uh, 10 mile an hour faster, he might have just cleared the capping and gone into the gardens there and maybe the tree or something and maybe they would have all survived. I was standing at this capping, which is well above the road surface, looked back at the imparallel skid marks, then turned my body 180 degrees the other way as if I was going to go into the tunnel, and bang. If you looked at your gun barrel, if you lined up your gun barrel, all nice and straight from that point, there was the 13th pillar right in front of me. So you could see it. The vehicle had left the road at the skid marks, banged into the retaining wall, the, the capping at the top of the retaining wall, come down to the ground again and just went like a rocket straight towards the 13th pillar. It's almost like a, a pill cue shot. Uh, would have hit the wall and straight away would, at the same angle would have hit, gone into PS13. All right, well, you've seen the numbers. You play with the numbers for 20, 22 years. Um, you're still happy with them? Yeah, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything wrong with the numbers at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, when we first did the numbers, it was, uh, we were probably way ahead of our time. You established the hypothesis that the Mercedes had braked sharply, ever from the skid marks, then became airborne, where the tyres kissed the side of the capping, with the result that this out-of-control projectile finally slammed into Pillar 13 within the tunnel. But the question was, what forced it to hit Pillar 13? In looking at this crime scene and all of the evidence that was there on the retaining walls, leading into the tunnel, I kept asking myself the same set of questions over and over. What caused this tragedy? Were other vehicles involved? Was there negligence or other factors? Could it have been foul play? Could mechanical interference be a contributor or even criminal interference? Most of all, could this have been a murder? There was still a lot missing. There were still questions that really needed to be answered because I wanted to work out what made it skid at that particular location right at the merge lane. There was a little merge lane, which is a, a feed lane for slower moving traffic from another in parallel lane, the, the, a little side street that wants to go onto the freeway. Right there was th two bold skid marks. Why? What caused that? Then I started to think, there's other scars, there's, there's, there's other evidence of metal hitting the other retaining wall, the opposite retaining wall, could there be a second vehicle involved?
My investigations and Vincent Messina's expertise established exactly what happened to the Mercedes carrying Princess Diana and Dodi Fayed. Evidence the French investigators missed in their hurry to clean up the scene and reopen the tunnel for the morning rush hour traffic. And then on October the 2nd, 1997, over a month after the crash, a new lead. French police announced a broken taillight lens was found at the scene and forensic tests on the Mercedes discovered white paint on the side of the black car. And that paint could have only have come from a white Fiat Uno. My second vehicle theory was now confirmed. There was another vehicle. And now finding that Fiat Uno was the key to cracking the case. There was only one slight problem. The Fiat Uno was at that time the most popular car in France. And white was the most popular colour. There are 45,000 Fiat's like this just in the Paris area alone. Uh, they've had uh, about 20 uh, detectives from the Paris Brigade Criminelle, which only has 120 detectives and all in it, out there looking for Fiat's every day. Uh, meanwhile, there's a serial killer on the loose in Paris, and um, you know people are beginning to talk. The unions of police are complaining that there's just too much manpower devoted for this potentially fruitless hunt for the Fiat. Uh, if if they don't find the Fiat amongst the 45 in the Paris area, they're talking about going to a broader area where there's another 110,000. In that case, it could just take forever, and there are really questions, given that the French police really believe that this is nothing but a routine uh, drink and driving accident, as to whether it's worth finding that fiat, you know, if they're going to spend months and months and, uh, of police, police manpower just trying to find something that may be mythical, or as the gentleman said, said earlier, a fiat that could conceivably be from another country. The French investigators managed to retrieve the paint from Mercedes after the crash, although they never found the white Fiat Uno. But they know it was there because of the forensic work that they did. It does appear to be that the Mercedes glanced off and no doubt didn't help its control. The Fiat Uno, as it entered the tunnel, that's why there was paint recovered and all the rest of it. I don't know whether the driver was involved or wasn't involved. The French police never found a white Fiat, and thus they never found the drivers. The forensic maxim says every contact leaves its trace. But if physical evidence and solid detective work had established how the car carrying Princess Diana crashed, it still couldn't tell us why it crashed. For that, we need to talk to witnesses, those people who were there at the time and who saw with their own eyes the events of that terrible night. Next time on Fatal Voyage, Diana Case Solved. There were eyewitnesses and they described this sandwiching, particularly one cup, because they were right there and they could see that the Mercedes was being, as it were, almost ambushed in the tunnel by this leading vehicle and the motorcycles behind. I noticed these dark formal cars and they weren't moving, they were parked, one was on an angle, one was more straight, and they definitely would have had to have preceded the car that was holding Henri Paul, Trevor Reese Jones, Princess Diana, and Mohammed Al-Fayed's son, Dodi Al-Fayed. So they would have been entering in the same direction as that, but they would have preceded them in the tunnel. We just had a dinner on the left bank and we crossed the bridge, the bridge de l'Alma, a little bit after midnight. And just at that point, at the end of the tunnel, we met the Fiat Uno. He was zigzagging. We thought he was drunk. 
when I looked at the car, there were a bump on the car and a scratch on the paint of the car. We saw a policeman presumably walking his beat and we walked up to him, we said, excuse me, officer, uh, we wanted to tell the police that last night, uh, earlier today, we were in this tunnel and we were witnesses to the car crash. He says, oh, that is okay. We, we have enough witnesses. And we looked at each other. Robin says, how can you have enough witnesses? He says, Madame, Monsieur, we, we have enough witnesses. If you will excuse me, uh, I, I, I must go. Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, is hosted by me, Colin McLaren, executive produced by Dylan Howard, and is a production of Broad and Water Studios and Endeavour Audio. Executive producers also include Tom Freestone, James Robertson, and Andy Tillett. The series is produced by Billy Spear and written by Dominic Utton. Reporting by Aaron Tinney and Doug Montero. With additional research by me, Colin McLaren. The series is mixed and engineered by Sean Kravitz, Sam Adder and Benstown. There is so much more to this story and you don't want to miss anything, I can assure you. Make sure you subscribe to Fatal Voyage, Diana, Case Solved, wherever you get podcasts. 